over his sin, calling on God to return to him in grace. And then in verse 8, there is this sudden turn where David, in an instant, (laughs) tells everyone who doesn't love God to get lost and get out. Um, And so we'll talk about that. It's pretty shocking um, how quickly this psalm turns. In Hebrews chapter 12, we are told something very familiar. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross, as you know, is utterly shameful. It wasn't just horrifically painful. That, that was part of the design. But the greater part was the shame. Hanging, having been beaten, nailed, likely without clothing, for all to see that this is the kind of person you are. This is what you're worth. This is what you deserve for your wrong. And Jesus deserved that. Why did he deserve it? Because he became sin. He took our sin. All of our sin was upon him. So being made our sin, he was justly treated by the wrath of God for our sin. Now that exhortation to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That exhortation in Hebrews chapter 12 comes in the context of encouraging God's people to think why they're being disciplined by God and how good and loving it is. The context of looking to Jesus is we are struggling against our own sin And the Lord disciplines the one he loves. God is addressing us as sons and disciplining us and reproving us. So we look to Jesus in the midst of the Father's discipline, which proves his love for us, which is unpleasant, and yet we endure it because we know it will produce fruit and righteousness in the future to come. But the context of looking to Jesus there is God's discipline, and it's harsh, and it's hard, and we don't want it. And that's what we've been enduring the last five months. God's loving but heavy hand of discipline upon us for our sins, because they're many. When I was in seminary, I had a... uh, a close friend, Reed Satterfield. Reed was um, a southern boy. Reed Satterfield, his grandpappy fought for the South. Um, but he was a godly man. Uh, one, uh, Just a quick story. has nothing to do with him telling it, but I just thought of this. I, we would come back sometimes in the summer, and... Mandy and the kids, I think, were here for a while. I came back for a few weeks, and I just gorged myself on brats because you don't get those down there. And when I flew back to Charlotte, he picked me up at the airport, and the first thing he said, whoa, you've gained some weight. (laughs) 
Uh, so Reed was a good friend. He could say stuff like that, right? And he was a missionary in Uganda um, working amongst the Muslims. And Muslims rushed into his village one day and shot up his house, and he was holding the door shut, and, and he caught, um, uh, he was shot in the shoulder and basically blew his shoulder apart. So he suffered for Christ. But before that, Reed was once telling me that there came a point when he was just sitting outside one day um, in Uganda in the sun and just became overwhelmed with a sense of his sin, particularly his treatment of his wife, his poor treatment of her. He, he, he said, he, I wasn't like abusing her or anything, but I was just short with her. My tone sometimes was unkind. I was harsh, maybe demanding. And he just began to weep over his sin. It just, it struck him how sinful that sin was. And he wept over it. And that's what we see in Psalm 6. And what I want, what I'm praying for us this morning is that Psalm 6 teaches us something of the kind of sorrow, the kind of repentance uh, that God might grant us. That, that we could learn something more repentance, right? When we enter the Christian faith, we're to repent and believe the gospel. And then Martin Luther says, the Christian life is a life of repentance. What does that look like? What might that look like? What might it look like for you to deal with your sin? And so what I want to do is just, in Psalm 6, as an example of faith, as an example of Beloved sons and daughters of God, knowing full well the saving grace of God, who mourn and grieve yet over the sin they continue to commit against one who has been so gracious to us. Now, now we can only know this psalm because of a man who is in sin, and yet who is still going to God in his sin, knowing that he had a mediator between God and him. He knew that God was still even approachable in his sin. So this is a, a prayer, a psalm, a song of faith. This is what it looks like to have faith in God for your own sin. So what it looks like, brothers and sisters, to deal with our sin. So God is teaching us here. Don't you have to be discipled in this school too? Don't you and I have to even be taught on how to come to God with the ways that we fail Him, the way that we grieve the Spirit, the way that we quench the Spirit with our own sin, the way that you as a father sin against your children, or you as a wife against your husband, or you as a brother against another brother or sister in the church, or you as a citizen against the ruling authority. Don't we have to be taught by God to have the faith to deal with sin in this way? So, I have, I think, four lessons that I want us to focus on from Psalm 6 that, I think it's four. Yeah, four. First, just the acceptance of responsibility. Second, the need for grace. Third, sorrow over sin. And fourth, um, not keeping sin hidden. So those are the four. So first, acceptance of responsibility. Look at verse 1, if you would. What does David say? 
Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. David isn't saying, don't rebuke me. He knows he deserves it. Sometimes if you are disciplining your kid, they may say, no, daddy. Don't. David's not saying that. He's saying, I deserve it, but it's enough. How long? Don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't rebuke me, (laughs) but not in your right wrath that I do deserve, like, enough. Now, what I want us to get from this is David is fully accepting of his just desserts of being disciplined. He, he's not excusing his sin. The psalm is very simple. The first thing to do with your sin is to acknowledge the truthfulness of it, to accept the responsibility for it. David's no victim here. There's, there's no excuse. There's, there's just simple accepting of the discipline because David knows he's worth, he's worthy of even more than he's getting. There's nothing you can say except be gracious to me. I'm getting what I deserve. But please, not in your anger, not in your wrath. Sometimes even in our sin, we might blame God, don't we? You likely, like I, have certain sins that are more clingy, more sticky, and you've pled with God, you've pleaded with the Lord for years to take it away. And, and you may even come to a point of like, I've asked God to take away. He hasn't. So you might even get bitter at him there. Or you might even then just begin to leave off dealing with it. Excusing yourself in it. We see this in our day in regard to the issue of homosexuality. But I could preach on that all day long. What about our drunkenness? What about our gluttony? What about our lying? What about our argumentativeness? We plead with God to remove it, to change our hearts. He doesn't. And so we might even begin to blame God or become embittered against him. Not David here. Not David. I wrote this psalm or this sermon two weeks ago when I was in the park. And some of you saw it around town. There was a huge RV driving around with Black Lives Matter stenciled in huge lettering across the entirety of the RV. Did anybody see that across town? Yeah, they parked at Hodeg Park for a while, and then they were at other places. And uh, it hit me as I was looking at that, that that kind of stuff in our day, it could be rather easy for you and I to become really haughty because that kind of stuff makes it really easy to kind of poke holes in the world's sin. It, it can make us think rather highly of ourselves. 
could make me, as I'm looking at that, come up with all the reasons why Black Lives Matter is so wrong. It can make us totally ignore the planks in our own eyes and dealing with the specks in theirs. David doesn't do that. David owns here his sin. David owns it. And so fathers, in dealing with your own sin, but even more so in dealing with your children's sin, don't let them excuse it. Don't let them make excuses for it. Teach them to just simply accept the responsibility for something along the lines of, Dad, I was wrong. I did it. I was wrong. There's no excuse. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. See how simple that is? But you and I have learned a different kind of discipleship, haven't we? I'm tired. I, you, didn't, you didn't explain it clear enough. He did. She did. We have all of this lengthy law language of why we don't deserve punishment. And we come to Psalm 6 and David says, just rebuke me, but not in your anger. I was wrong. I was wrong. So that's the first thing. Just accept the responsibility. We could all do much better, wives to your husbands, of just simply looking at your husband and saying, man, was I argumentative with you today. Please forgive me. Or if you're an employee of an employer, I didn't get it done. No excuse. Keep it that simple. David's that simple. Second, because David accepts responsibility, he sees nothing in himself, no excuse outside of himself. And so he realizes that he only needs one thing. Be gracious to me. Because David sees the reality of his sin before a holy God. There's no excuse. There's nothing to do. He's in the best place possible because all he can say is, I need your grace. What's grace? Grace is two sides. God not giving you what you deserve because he gave Christ that. And instead, giving you the forgiveness and mercy and tenderness and blessing that you do not deserve. And that's all that David has. That's the only thing. That's it. That's all he has. A dependence on the grace of God. Be gracious to me. That's it. The Lord's discipline, the effect, the good effect of the Father's discipline on David brought David to the best place possible. A place of grace. A place of acceptance by God, not based on anything in David, but only in David's Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And this is what God is saying to us in this day. With the shutdowns, with the mask mandates, with the civil unrest, what do you have but the grace of God? What do you depend on but the grace of God? This is what he's teaching us to do in all of his discipline for our sin, in all of the guilt you feel, in all of the shame you feel. Instead of trying to worm off that hook, how about we just look at God and say, I need your grace. There's no excuse. There is nothing I can say but be gracious to me. I don't deserve anything from you except judgment and wrath. There's... There's nothing I can pay. There's nothing I can say. There's no good I can do. There's no way to undo the wrong. All I need is grace. That's it. The cross. And there's no better place to be. David's languishing. He is in such trouble that his The foundations of his being, his bones are troubled. His soul is greatly troubled. And so he needs nothing but grace. So the first lesson is just simple acceptance, acknowledging the responsibility of our sin with no excuse. Second, then the the singular need for grace. Third, then we can learn from David, sorrow for sin. Psalm 5 from a couple weeks ago taught us God's hatred of sin. Psalm 6 teaches us sorrow for sin. This entire psalm is a lament, a sorrow, a grief over sinning against the Lord and sinning against grace. Remember David here. David was a special object of the grace of God. David brought from a a nobody family, from a small tribe, youngest of many, a shepherd. God took him from that in great grace and made him king and blessed him with honor and wealth and intelligence and sons and daughters. He had everything by the undeserved grace of God, and yet David sinned against that grace. I think sometimes we as Christians get fairly arrogant and impatient with the sins of others, the sins of the world, and yet the world, that's what they're supposed to do. They do not have the Spirit. They've not been born again, and yet we have God's here. We have been born again. We have the grace of God and we sin against it. And this causes David great sorrow. Now in this sorrow, we do have to remember Christ. In Isaiah 53, he was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so as we see the sorrow for sin here, we can think of Christ on the cross and how he, in his entirety of his life, but in the main on the cross at the end, 
He was filled with grief and sorrow, bearing our sin and shame. And yet, here we can learn how to respond to sin. In Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim, after the burden of sin fell off and he realized the freedom of God's grace and the forgiveness of all his sins, comes to a place where the path that he's on has three choices. Two are wide and easy, and one is a very narrow, very steep, ugly-looking path, and he realizes that's the path. So he begins this ascent, and it's very difficult, and then he gets about halfway up, and there's a place of rest. And it's just supposed to be a, a short place of respite from the long climb, and he begins again, but he falls asleep. He begins to be lax and apathetic. He falls asleep, and the scroll that he had been given, the the assurance of his salvation, of God's word is lost. It rolls out of his coat. And uh, he awakes, realizes and is sorrowful, begins to, the rest of the climb, gets to the top, is warned of two lions in the way, looks for the scroll, which is the assurance of the salvation of God's word, and it's gone. And he realizes he has to go back down and find this scroll, and he begins to weep over his sin. He begins to mourn his laziness and his spiritual apathy. And that's what we see here. David is languishing. The very structure of his body is troubled. His soul is troubled. Verse 3 just cuts off. My soul is great trouble, but you, O Lord, how long? Deliver my life. Save me. In death, there's no remembrance. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my mourning. Every night, I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away. My eye wastes away. It's a, if you see somebody who's in grief, you can always tell it in their eyes. They look older. Grief ages. The eyes grows weak because of all my foes. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul explains that in his first letter to them or in another letter, that as he dealt with their sin, it brought them to godly grief. You felt a godly grief. He further explains, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's godly grief that we see here in Psalm 6. Worldly grief is the kind of grief you get just because you're caught. Worldly grief is the kind of grief that you get when you're caught and have some um, undesirable consequences that you kick against. You don't accept them. You make excuses. You blame others. You don't use the language of the Bible in talking about your sin. You call it a mistake or, or having kind of issues. You won't name it for what the Bible names it. Because you don't really have godly grief, you have worldly grief. But here David writes a psalm that the entirety of the church will sing over the sorrow and shame for his sin. Worldly grief focuses on yourself and tries to minimize the consequences, tries to manage them. You begin to demand that others forgive you and accept you immediately right now. 
Because you're not really sorrowful of your sin, you're just sorrowful of the cost of your sin. But in Psalm 6, we see godly grief. He's worn out over it. And mingled with David's grief is a real fear of God. He fears, in verse 1, God's anger and wrath. In verse 5, he fears separation from the Lord in hell. Remember Matthew 10, 28, fear not him who can only kill your body, but not your soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So David fears God and is very sorrowful for his sin. What's the application to that? Maybe we should come before the Lord and ask him for such sorrow over our sin. We talk about brokenness a lot in the church today, don't we? Sing about it, broken, 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 broken. Well, this is what it looks like. In fact, for some of you who are not yet Christian, it does begin with a, a strong conviction of sin, with realizing your just deserts of God's wrath. So brought me to the Lord. I was terrified of what God would do to me for my sin, and I knew I deserved it. Maybe we can ask the Lord for the faith to mourn our sin. Lastly, as we learn discipled in how to deal with our sin, we had David's acceptance, his acknowledgement, his ownership of his sin. We had David realizing he only thing he had is God's grace. We have his sorrow. And lastly, we see David, he doesn't keep his sin hidden. This isn't explicit in Psalm 6, but it's implicit in that he wrote about it. We saw in an earlier psalm um, when David was dealing in Psalm 3 with his sin from Bathsheba. We don't know the, psalm, the sin here in Psalm 6. Many point back to David's sin with Bathsheba, but we don't know, and I think that's really helpful to us because we can just find ourselves in this psalm then. One of the ways that you and I have been taught and discipled to deal with our sin is just to keep it secret. Just keep it secret. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. The context there is elders. The context there might be church fathers and mothers, those trusted in the faith, those mature in the faith. Like, what if our response to this COVID stuff was to confess your besetting sins to one of your elders? What might the Lord do in your life? What if you had faith to go as a young mother to an older mother in the church and confess your sins as a mother? What if that was our response? David, after dealing with his sin in verse 8, suddenly turns in an instant and deals with the enemies. It, you may have seen this in your life when you're down, when maybe your sin has overwhelmed you, the vultures begin to circle. I've seen it in pastoring that at times of greatest weakness in my life or in my family's life, those who are opposed to me use it as an opportunity to um, 
you know, try to get rid of you. And so David's experiencing that here. He is overwhelmed with sorrow over his sin, and his enemies, like we see in politics, are taking uh, taking advantage of it. But David, realizing that the Lord has heard the sound of his weeping, that the Lord has heard his plea, that the Lord has accepted his prayer, <laughs> turns on his enemies and says, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. I recently watched the movie The Patriot again, and um, the man's son is murdered by a English officer, and yet in his grief, he takes up arms and goes and deals with the enemies and saves another son. That's what David's doing here. He's a shepherd who's sorrowing over his own sin, but now has to take up his rod and drive off the wolves. So David's a penitent warrior. He's a penitent warrior. The righteous in Proverbs 28.1 are as bold as a lion. David so is doing warfare on two fronts. He's warring against his own sin. And he's warring against the enemies of God's people. He's fighting the good fight. So here's what it looks like to be a Christian man. A Christian woman to fight the good fight of faith. The first fight is against our own sin. The second fight is against those who would take us away from the living God. The second fight is for those things that you might welcome into your home that are godless, whether it's in media or social media. We fight those things too as we fight our own sin. So this is a definition of a faithful man. He fights his own sin and he fights those who do harm to God's people too. So a couple closing applications. God's grace is more than able to handle your sin. David is forgiven. David is welcomed back. God relents of his discipline. So we have to have faith for our sins too and for the sins of others. God's mercy is more for you. The besetting sin that you continue to do that you hate, God's forgiveness, his mercy is real. And it is enough for you to no longer walk in it. But it is the grace of God. It is the faith that Christ actually did accomplish everything you need for your sin to be forgiven and defeated. This is what we want, right? As Christians, we want to know that Christ's work on the cross has forgiven all of our sins in the past. We want to know that God's grace is sufficient for our forgiveness of our sins right now in the present. And we have the hope that God will give us the grace to overcome and defeat the sins that we'll continue to struggle with in the future, that we will no longer walk in them as we once did. 
We have to have faith for all three of those. That's what God's grace does. God's grace doesn't wink at sin. God's grace does not sweep sin under the rug. It does forgive it. But God's grace teaches us to say no to no to our sin too. And one of the things that I too often deal with in counseling are those in families who have never heard a spouse or a child ask forgiveness or apologize for sin ever. A husband will say, I have never ever heard my wife admit wrong and ask for my forgiveness ever or vice versa. It should not be so with us. You as a husband, you as a wife, you as a parent, friend, worker, should have faith in God and humility enough to go to somebody without excuse and simply say, I was wrong. Second application is weeping. As I was studying for this sermon, um, one of the resources I read said, the only good thing we got from feminism is it gives the okay for men to weep. And I think that's true. Grieving is hard work. It's a work of faith. Grieving is really, really hard work. I think there's some need for us as God's people to not be so spiritual as to think that we shouldn't be weeping. Some of you have had awful things happen in your life to you. Abuse, neglect. I mean, like really painful things and you just haven't mourned them. You haven't wept over them. You haven't wept over the abuse of your child from an uncle or something. You haven't wept over the loss of relationship with those who have turned away from the Lord. You haven't wept over the current cultural disintegration I mean, we did see Jesus weep when he was on earth. When Lazarus dead. We've all know the trivia question was the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. God in flesh grieved and wept, and we are even to take up our cross and follow him there. So have faith for weeping. Because we need God's grace. Let's pray. Father, please uh, humble us. Please give us the grace to deal with our sin as we're here taught. Give me the grace. Give us the grace to deal with our sin as we're taught in Psalm 6. Give us this faith for this. Depending on your grace, depending on your goodness as a father, teach us these things. Um, in particular, God, teach us how to just simply, humbly, I mean, without nuance, without a lot of words, just accept responsibility for our failures. Help us there, oh God. Give us the faith for this and, and, and the faith for the sin of others in our lives to endure with them, to have much patience with them in their besetting sins as we would want them for us. God, we do praise you for your grace. We praise you for your acceptance of us in Christ. We praise that we can come to you with boldness before your throne, even in our sin. 
praise that we confess our sins. You're faithful and just forgive us and cleanse us. So, God, give us faith for this. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.